Did you know comic Fred Armisen is Latino? And so is baseball legend Ted Williams? And singer Demi Lovato? And even me? Latinos have long hidden in plain sight in American society. Some do it to lessen the racism they might face from non-Latinos, but there's another type of whitewashing that's even more disturbing. It's when Latinos downplay their distinct identities among themselves or suppress the visibility of fellow Latinos altogether. I'm Gustavo Arellano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. It's Wednesday, September 22nd, 2021. Today, we talk about the phenomenon of Latino erasure. Who does it, why it happens, and how it persists. We'll do it through the lens of arts and culture, so we'll talk to LA Times columnist Carolina A. Miranda about the jumbled history of Latino identity in Latin America and the United States. And we talk to two members of Culture Clash, a legendary theater troupe that has long billed itself as Chicano, meaning Mexican-American. But it turns out a couple of its members aren't even Mexican-American at all. The 2020 census shows the diversity of the millions of people in the U.S. with roots in Latin America. There are Afro-Latinos and mixed families, Latinos who identify as indigenous and those who say they're white. And yet American society tends to reduce these multitudes of identities into whatever the most prominent Latino community is in each region. So if it's in the Southwest, if you're Latino, you're Mexican. Florida, Cuban. Northeast, Puerto Rican, and sometimes Dominican. Carolina A. Miranda writes about arts and cultures for the Los Angeles Times. She's also Peruvian and Chilean descent. And I got to be honest, Carolina, the first time I met you, I just assumed you were a Mexican. <laughs> that's that's a common mistake in Los Angeles. <laughs> so, <laughs> And, you know, everyone here is a little bit Mexican by osmosis. So I've generally embraced it. You're very kind for that. Uh, before we talk about Latino erasure in the United States, we need to set up the history of identity in Latin America since the day of the Spanish conquistadors. And there's actually an arts element to it that was really influential in that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, there was this whole system of Costa paintings and uh, Costa paintings are these really interesting and really racist colonial documents created by Spanish painters indigenous painters as well, that recorded all of the racial mixtures in Latin America. So a white person with an indigenous person, a white person with a black person, an indigenous person with with a black person, all of the ultimate combinations of people that might emerge painted, of course, to reveal the Spanish on top of this racial hierarchy. So the Spanish had this like real conscientiousness about race. At the same time, it was it was this thing that proved um, really important upon independence of, you know, independence leaders saying, hey, we're not Spanish. We're this other thing. We're mixed with other races here in the new world. Yeah, and that manifests itself in the United States. The Southwest was once part of Mexico. So once it gets conquered, the Mexicans who remained, a lot of them start telling Americans, we're not Mexican, we're not Mexican, we're actually Spanish. And the Americans actually differentiate those people. Those of higher standing were considered Spanish and thus European and kind of okay. But those of the lower classes remain Mexicans and then thus were demonized. Oh, absolutely. I mean, what's really interesting is if you go to the plaza in Los Angeles, there's a plaque of the original Los Angeles settlers. That's downtown next to Olvera Street, and it's considered the birthplace of modern-day L.A. 
And it being settled by the Spanish, the race of each person is duly noted. And whether they're mixed race or whether they're white, whether they're Afro-Mestizo, uh, it's a really fascinating uh, monument. But yes, what happened when the U.S. took over, you know, the association with the Mexican was a very negative one. So it, it all became about celebrating the Spanish. How could California set itself up culturally in opposition to the East Coast? What distinguished this place? And, you know, among American cultural leaders in the in the late 19th century, in the early 20th century, that was the Spanish. It was not the Mexican. So that's where you get Spanish revival architecture. It was an effort to embrace this colonial past while erasing the Mexican. Yeah, we're talking about whitewashed adobes, a tiled roof, the big plazas, and also it, it extends to food for decades. Mexican food wasn't called Mexican food. It was called Spanish food. Exactly. I mean, I think there was, you know, as somebody who grew up in the 70s, you know, you would still meet it, it, when I was a kid, residual uh, old timers who would refer to Latinos as Spanish. Like, oh, are you Spanish? Like it was just kind of a holdover from a certain era. Because of all this residual romanticizing of a European heritage, then there's this stigma to identify as Latino, especially if you're not white passing. So some people reject the label altogether or even their specific identities, Mexican, Salvadoran, Cubans. Others are just ashamed. And it's like our version of imposter syndrome. I know I went through that going through high school, even though our high school is basically all Mexican and Central American. What about you? You know, it's a term I've I, with a name like Carolina Miranda, you have to like either embrace it or go home. <laughs> <laughs> so I think being Latina is is just something we were and um, and it was an important part of our identity. That said, you know, there has always been this aspiration to the Spanish. I mean, if you take the term Hispanic, which was the term used by the Nixon administration, the first time Latinos were counted as a separate population in the census, you know, it was the term. Hispanic. Hispanic literally means of Spain or connected to Spain. And so there has long been uh, a push in some communities to link themselves as much with that history than with, say, the indigenous history, the mixed race history, the other histories of the Americas. In the United States, there's a phenomenon known as passing where people who don't belong to an ethnic group may sometimes on purpose, sometimes not present as though they're part of another identity. Did you ever find yourself passing? Well, you know, you had other people assuming you were Mexican and you just kind of rolling with it. But did you ever find yourself passing yourself as Mexican or even passing as white? There have been occasions in which I've been mistaken for white. And I mean, it's been fairly infrequent. But, you know, it is this interesting window into what people are willing to tell you when they think they're white versus what they will say to your face when, when they know that you're not. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll have more after this break. Carolina, so we we're talking about Latino erasure and passing, and I'm going to give you my favorite example of when Latinos try to pass historically in white spaces. And it's probably an urban legend, but the story goes that a David Torres tried to get into Hollywood and just couldn't find any success. But then all of a sudden, he changed his name to David Towers, and he became an executive because of that. And to me, that's a funny and sad story. It was I heard it in college, and it was illustrative to me that if you wanted to succeed in American society— you had to hide your Mexicanness, And though it's probably an urban legend, as you know, there's many examples like it in real life. 
Yeah. And I mean, certainly all over Hollywood, you know, Rita Hayworth was Margarita Cancino. I think, you know, for a long time, there have been these attempts to to pass because then you don't get pigeonholed. Part of the problem with being, say, Latino in Hollywood is that Hollywood then sees you as the, you know, the extra in the cowboy movie, the Mexican bandido, the maid. Hollywood has a very limited view of of the ways in in which Latinos have been historically portrayed on film. So for many actors, it was just better to to be something else. I think uh, in art, it's it's a a little bit different. You can paint in your studio whether anybody decides to buy your paintings or not. But it, it has certainly meant any success in the field has generally meant embracing Western artistic traditions. I think it was really in the 1960s and 70s when you just saw a greater turn towards um, indigenous heritage to mestizo heritage to individual national heritages, you know, in the era of the Chicano civil rights movement. Prior to that, to have any success, you would have had to be the kind of artist who was adhering to an artistic mainstream. As you're talking about that, we're talking about the Chicano movement, Chicano referring to Mexican-Americans. That's the 60s, 70s. You're also having Puerto Rican identity, Boricuas, Cuban identity. Like you're starting to see more migration from across Latin America. And then as it crosses into the 1980s, all of a sudden we're told, hey, you know what? Let's get a unified Latino identity. And to me, that's kind of erasure. Hey, let's get people with backgrounds from 30-some countries, and some of these countries are the biggest in the world, and let's just make them all into one big ball of Latinidad. Yeah, I mean, and that was something that emerged out of the census. You know, let's take the people of a continent and put them in an easily classifiable taxonomy that, you know, it's a checkbox and and doesn't begin to recognize the regional, national, racial uh, and other differences that exist. That broad bucket was was an idea that Latinos imported to the United States as well. I mean, the concept of Latinidad does date to independence. You know, leaders like Bolivar uh, held up the idea of this like racial mixture as as separating us from Spain, as making us uh, Latin American. Uh, so it is an idea that we've had running in the culture for a long time. I think in Latin America, what happens is there's enough knowledge of the culture to differentiate what is pan-Latino and then what are what is an individual national or indigenous or other culture. In the United States, it's become this catch-all bucket of brown um, with and fails to recognize any other reality and, and oftentimes fails to recognize, as you know, these our own racial stratifications in, in, in which white is more desirable and anything else is not. Yeah, people I assume we're brown, but we're black, we're white, we're, you know, Asian. We're literally the entirety of the world in Latin America involved with our indigenous identities and then come here to the United States and everyone just reduces us to Mexican or Cuban or if they're nice, Latino. Yes, yes, exactly. I mean, it's 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 become a shorthand. And I do think we find ourselves at a moment now where uh, people are pushing back on it where this idea of this catch-all bucket for everything from Latin America, it's, you know, it's beginning to fall apart. Yeah, it's quite, it's quite remarkable, especially to see younger people, people younger than you and I online, just asserting that identity, asserting, you know, Salvadoran identity, uh, you know, Central American identity, South American identity. Frankly, it's an education for people like myself. 
Exactly. And I think, you know, that's something we're seeing uh, that there's a parallel track with indigenous representation. I mean, it used to be that every indigenous person in the United States was Native American and nobody really talked about like their ethnicities or tribes uh, or, or or tribal affiliation. And now people are much more conscientious as identifying as Navajo or Lakota or... Um, or yeah, Tongva, so, so hundreds of tribes that still exist in the United States. Exactly. And in many cases, their languages still exist, their traditions still exist, but we're kind of, you know, uh, uh, elided by this fictional category of Native American. So what's the danger of these broad categories? It allows people to forget that these other cultures do exist. You know, that, for example, in places like Mexico and Peru, where I'm partly from, the indigenous a population is the majority and with it comes traditions of language of culture of food of religion spirituality that have um, been actively erased passively erased um, have there's been dispossession of land all of these issues that have gone along with that get eliminated when everybody's just put into the category of Latino. And so I think we are at this moment where we're, we're, you know, where we're thinking about these legacies of colonialism, we're thinking about these legacies of our identity and saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, these indigenous cultures, they never went away. They're not Latino. They are Quechua and they are Aymara and they are Zapotec and they are Tongva. And, and maybe it's time we started recognizing them as such, just as, you know, we don't just put Europeans in the catch-all of European. We make the difference between a French person and a German person and a Spanish person. I think there is beginning to be this thought that we need to do the same for our own distinct cultures. And we have these conversations at a time in a country that has so often, as you said, tried to pigeonhole us. And sometimes people don't like the fact that Latinos, Latinx can be so fluid in all these different identities. So what ramifications do these conversations or this fluidity of identity have for American society as a whole? Well, I think it's a moment in the culture where we're we're beginning to think about the representation of those identities. So one of the things that's being, say, discussed in art circles in Los Angeles is that, you know, of the Latinos that have been represented in the art world, like Chicano representation, Mexican representation has generally been strong. Well, how are we representing Central American cultures? How are Salvadorian and Guatemalan and Honduran artists, um, Colombian artists, all who have uh, a presence uh, in Los Angeles? Is their work being represented? What aspect of their stories are unique and deserve to be highlighted? You know, the the Central American refugee experience is a very different uh, story from, say, the Chicano experience of being born and growing up in, in, in the United States and being English dominant. And so how can we begin to expand the range of narratives to be inclusive of those stories and understanding of those stories and understanding the way those stories shape us and shape our city? Thank you so much for this interview, Carolina. Thank you for having me. Coming up, the Salvadoran comedy legends who make up two thirds of a self-proclaimed Chicano theater troupe. Culture Clash is a legendary performance troupe that has examined Latino identity via films, plays, monologues, and more for decades. The group has long identified as Chicano, so imagine my surprise this past summer when members Rick Salinas and Herbert Siguenza made the following announcement. 
Hi, I'm Herbert Seguenza. And I'm Rick Salinas. Now, you might know us as two-thirds of the Chicano theater group, Culture Clash. And we say Chicano, but a lot of people don't know that two of the members are Salvadorans. Us! So today, we decided to come out of the closet. Yes. My name is Ricardo Salinas, and I am Salvadoreño. That's from their digital play, The Salvi Chronicles. It gets into the history of the Salvadoran diaspora in the United States, and especially in Los Angeles, where they're the second largest Latino group. Rick Herbert, welcome. And what took you guys so long to tell the world you're Salvadoran? <laughs> hey, Gustavo, thanks for having us on. Uh, Herbert, I'll just start by saying that, yep, I, I, we, come, we came out of the closet, man. We came out of the closet. And uh, I mean, for many years, people did know that we were Salvadorian. But a lot of Chicanos and people that have seen Culture Clash for years were in shock, in shock. Almost wanted to quit the membership and the fan club. Yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, we just, we just wanted to be gentle with the, giant, with the Chicano uh, dinosaurs out there. The Chicanosaurus. Well, yeah, many of us Chicanosauruses out there. I, I think when you folks announced it, some people knew. Rick had come out to me privately years ago. Herbert, I didn't know that about you. But when I heard him, I'm like, oh, cool. Then the next question is like, why didn't they say this all these years? I, I hope they didn't feel bad or no sé. Are we Mexicans that mean or something? No, it was a, you know, it was kind of a branding question. You know, we are, we are a Chicano, you know, performance group. And, you know, we just wanted the branding to be very direct and not, you know, convoluted with other, you know, <laughs> brands, you know. I mean, it's an aesthetic, you know, Chicano, uh, you know, who can define it now with the young generation? But as you know, Gustavo, it's an aesthetic, you know, the the, the style of clothing, the, the car culture, the graffiti, uh, the, the way we speak, you know, the orale this and that. And so the performance and, you know, we have uh, all these godfathers that uh, and godmothers from Dolores Huerta to uh, Luis Valdez to Jose Montoya. And, you know, Richard Montoya is a real Chicano in the group. Yolanda Lopez, a legendary artist, may she rest in peace. She just passed away a couple of weeks ago. And Renee Yanez, who was her partner that, that created Culture Clash. So when the group started, uh, you know, Salvadorans really, we've been here. Herbert can talk about his parents being here like in the in the 50s. And my parents came up here in the mid-60s uh, as an Ellis Island type of uh, immigration story, you know, just for a better life. And as you know, in the 80s is when the real Salvadorian migration came up here because of the Civil War in El Salvador. But we've always been these Latino culture that has been underneath the Mexican culture and the Chicano culture. So we're just starting to find ourselves after all these years and, and the negative portrayals of MS-13 and 18th Street Gang. They've just kind of like uh, hindered us a bit. But, you know, now we are even trying to, you know, co-opt the word salvi to, to sound a little cooler, you know. So that's why we created the Salvi Chronicles. It took this long. And Herbert and I have been thinking about this for years. And we've included Salvadorian uh, topics during uh, Culture Clash performances throughout all the years. Herbert, Rick touches on this idea of how Salvadorans historically have been portrayed in the United States for decades, like in the 80s. I mean, look at the Reagan administration would even consider Salvadorans to be refugees. And then in the past, say, 15 to 20 years, oh, Salvadorans, they're MS-13, a big gang. Now they're like these migrant caravans that are trying to, quote unquote, invade the United States. And that's what I've seen online is that this resurgence of Salvadoran American pride to say like, no, OK, we've been quiet enough. I mean, we'll set aside the Latino part of it for a little bit. But among the Americans, we've been quiet enough. We're just not going to deal with this anymore. We're going to assert who we are. And we're going to tell our story. 
That's correct. I think the narrative for the last 30 years from the since the Civil War has been a one of of of, you know, poverty, of just, you know, just downtrodden people that are, you know, leaving their country from from corruption, gangs. I mean, it's just terrible, right? Civil wars. But, you know, El Salvador has a long history of peace as well. And prior to that, um, you know, uh, they're hardworking people. Uh, it's one of the most successful countries in, in Central America, you know, after Costa Rica. And so, you know, we're hardworking people. And there were Salvadorans before the 80s here, not, not, not a large population, but that included uh, Rick's family, that included my family. My dad went, uh, my dad is a World War II veteran. You know, he was one of the few Salvadorans in, in, the, in the army. So we have a long, you know, history, Amer- American, Salvadoran, American history here. And so it's really unfortunate that that image is, is connected to us, this image of, of yeah, of strife. Just drive. And then on top of that, for so many years and even to this day, in the larger scope, people are like, Salvadoran? Is that Mexican? And then just to set it up for the non-Latinos out there, there's long-standing tensions between Salvadorans and Mexicans, mostly because Mexicans, we treat Salvadorans as they're trying to come through the United States even worse, frankly, than Mexicans are treated by Americans up in the United States. There's the competition of jobs, you know, low-paying jobs. There's that. So, yeah, there, there's a long history, even even soccer history. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's it's almost like when uh, Dominicans came into Puerto Rican neighborhoods, you know, it, it's this this whole thing of, uh, of we're, we're all Latinos. We all speak Spanish. I always say that our abuelas are all the same uh, when it comes to, you know, unifying uh, the Latino races. But uh, Mexicans have always been afraid of that. They're going to take our jobs kind of a deal. And I, I mean, we even have jokes when, you know, in the theater community, we have Chicanos that, that say, wait, you're Salvadoran? Wait, what are you doing? You know, it's this whole thing that that we I had to pretend in a sense when I was a kid that I was. First of all, I, I thought I, I told people that I was Spanish because that was more noble. And then after that, I had to say, oh, yeah, I'm Mexican. I'm Chicano because kids didn't know where El Salvador was. And, and I have my long standing joke where I say I tell my teachers that I'm from Central America and they thought that I was from Kansas. And we have internal racism, you know, with Latinos. Um, a lot of Latinos, Mexicans tell me, you don't sound or look Salvadoran, you know, because I'm 5'8", you know, <laughs> and not four. You know, not five one. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, so it's like you know, there's this internal racism that we have too towards uh, Salvadorans. You, you mentioned uh, earlier ethnic groups, and that's one of the things I've always appreciated about what you folks do at Culture Clash. You don't just talk about the Latino experience; you tie it into the white ethnic experience in the United States. Like I've seen ustedes, and also Rick, uh, Rick Montoya, Richard Montoya, uh, the other member of Culture Clash. You ustedes have played Irishmen, Jews, Italians. I'm sure there's a Pole or a Slovak in there. And what and one of the points that you try to make is that those groups were once seen as non-white. And then they forgot that identity about themselves. They forgot that they were othered because they melted themselves into the melting pot. So is that what's happening with Latinos and identity? Is that part of it? Or is it something new that's going on with us? I don't think so. I don't think Latinos are going to melt. I really don't believe that. I think our language, our culture is so strong. We're Americanos, you know. We didn't cross the Atlantic. We were here already, you know. So we have this... uh, tradition of being Americanos. And I don't think we're going to change. We're just migrating differently. That's all. 
Yeah, and and the whole thing of the Hidalgo Treaty, this was South, you know, the, the whole Southwest was Mexicano. That's North America. You know, my daughters, my wife is Mexican and I'm Salvadoreño, so my daughters are Salvi Mexes, as I call them. But she has a little bit Peruvian. So I tell my daughters they are the most all-American girls possible because they're from North America, Central America, and South America with the Peruvian. <laughs> and so if they ever say to them, you know, go back to where you came from, they're going to have to say, okay, where, uh, North America? America, Central America, or South America? Yeah, I believe I believe in this concept of La Reconquista. I mean, you know, you go out into LA at, you know, five in the morning, all you see is brown people, you know, going to work, you know, and that's, uh, you know, it's amazing. It's amazing. So the subsuming of identities, of, of smaller identities, in recent years, young Central American activists have talked about Mexican hegemony, this idea that we Mexicans, as the dominant Latino ethnic group in the United States, at least in the Southwest, that we actively try to suppress other Latino identities. And I never believed that, but like hearing your guys' story, I could see why some people do believe in that. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's once again, it's that competitive nature, too. You know, you, you're you're in schools, you're in elementary schools and, and, and you know, and, and Mexicans have been here. You know, there's a lot of generations. I always tell, you know, uh, Anglos in America, you know, the Americans that are always afraid of the immigrant and, and, and the waves of those people, you know, especially in Huntington Beach, as you know, if they go to East L.A., to Whittier, to uh, El Monte, Montevideo, and they see that Chicanos that have been here for generations, they're the ones at Subways, at Starbucks. They're the ones that at all these stores, they're in school, they're, they're, they're the guys putting Spectrum TV on you. They're all Latinos, American. They, English is their, their dominant language. That's what they should be afraid of. Not this like, you know, the immigrants coming in, which is a small percentage. We have been here. And as Salvadoreños, we're now just going to be taking it a little stronger. I'm seeing poets. I'm seeing uh, CSUN has a great department of, of, of Central American Studies. Roberto Lovato, who just wrote a book about all this experience. We're coming. You know, Milta Ortiz is in Arizona. And we crack up when we talk amongst ourselves, the Salvadoreños, Ruben Martinez, another example. We say, hey, they opened up a pupuseria. There's a new pupuseria here in Arizona. Oh, yeah, there's one here in Utah. Oh, there's a pupuseria. <laughs> and as you know, Gustavo, you took us to one of the best pupuserias right there in Newport Beach. Yep, that's absolutely true. Okay, all these questions I haven't even asked about the play. So what's the elevator pitch of the Salvi Chronicles from each of you? Okay, um, the Salvi, well, first of all, you know, we as Culture Clash have been performing as Culture Clash. And, you know, because of the uh, pandemic, March 2020 ended our career on stage with a live audience. It just stopped, right? So we've been doing all these streaming um, videos we did uh, for La Jolla Playhouse. We did the, uh, the Totally Fake Latino News for CTG, Center Theater Group. We're still editing uh, Chavez Ravine in nine innings, which is going to be coming out, Gustavo. Which is So with, with, with that time in between, Herbert and I just said, let's do something on our culture. So we did six episodes of the Salvi Chronicles. They're 10 minutes each for a Center Theater Group. And you could get online. Uh, for that, they're free, and it's just us having fun, making fun of ourselves, doing information, doing sketches, and talking about Salvadorian things that people do not know about. Herbert? Salvadorians for dummies. <laughs> and all of us could learn from it. And of course, Culture Clash is just always amazing. What Was there a turning point for each of ustedes when you felt you could embrace 
not, I mean, you are obviously privately embrace those identities, but publicly say, this is a time for us to just go out there and do this. I felt it right now, you know, the kids getting engaged, you know, you know, it's just, we, we, the, the purpose of the show is to show why we're in cages, why we were gang members, why are there pupusirias in every uh, neighborhood now? You know, we just wanted to, to fill in the blanks, tell people why this is happening. And a lot of it has to do, well, most all of it has to do with American policy in Central America. And it's also um, the amnesia that Americans have. There's cultural amnesia, there's historical amnesia. You know, uh, people just live by headlines and don't do their homework. You know, they don't, you know, and it's not only us. I mean, there's Puerto Ricans have been here, Cubans have been here, but do people really know about those cultures? And so, you know, we're, we're starting to just let people know about the Salvadorian culture. And, and I'm sorry that nobody else is doing it. It, it was so surprising when, when people are telling us we've never seen this. Uh, this um, this white guy that's a writer friend of mine, he's there like this. Oh, my God, I can finally say this. I thought you were all Mexican, and I'm so glad you're not. <laughs> wow, what, what a compliment for us Mexicans. <laughs> what a backhand compliment. <laughs> finally, any more identity reveals you want to proclaim right now? My birth certificate says I'm white because I was born in uh, 1959 in San Francisco, and they didn't have the... They didn't have Hispanic yet on or Latino on birth certificates. You're either black or white. <laughs> no, I just want to say that as Salvadoreño, we, we definitely are a hardworking people. I mean, if you go down to 6th Street near MacArthur Park, where, you know, the, uh, the majority of Salvadoreños live in the most densely populated area in Los Angeles, the Pico Union, MacArthur Park, we will sell anything. We were out there selling uh, pupusas, selling clothing, uh, you know, illegal uh, uh, DVDs. <laughs> we are a hardworking people. And, and, and amongst us, we, we're a lot of educators. You know, there's doctors, lawyers, you know, the whole bit where we say we're not just one thing. And we're also very American because the thing about El Salvador, our parents really loved America. And that's why the names of Salvadoreños, we have a whole sketch about that, where Salvadoreños are named Herbert, for example, Wilmer, Douglas, Nelson, Franklin. I mean, and it's because the love of America. So, you know, we're not saying that we're kissing America's butt, but, you know, because of the policies, we are really engaged. And now we have a president that's trying to make Bitcoin as the dominant monetary system in El Salvador. That's a whole other story we could get into later. And we had an entire podcast about that. Nayib Bukele and shout out to my Salvadoran friend, baby Nelson, Papi Nelson, right there. Rick Herbert, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank, thank you, you Gustavo. Gustavo. Keep up the good work, man. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow, part two of our series on migrant camps on the U.S.-Mexico border takes us to Texas, where over 16,000 refugees, mostly Haitians, are being rounded up and sent back home. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, Melissa Kaplan, Marina Peña, and Ashley Brown. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editors are Shawnee Hilton and Lauren Rabb. And our theme music is by Andrew Eben. Special thanks to Hiba El Orbani. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow The Times on whatever platform you use. 
Don't Make Us the Puchia Podcasts. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news on Desmadre. Gracias.